This is an ABC podcast. Aloha kako, nisan bolivinaka, and kia orana. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's a treat to have you join us this Monday morning. Hope you had a great weekend, like my good old All Blacks win over South Africa. I'm Aggie Dubo, and again, I thank you for your company. Uh, today on the show, we've got a deadly outbreak there in Fiji. Uh, Pacific campaigners not convinced on Fukushima's water release into the Pacific Ocean, and also eradicating rats in Tonga to restore its ecosystem. System. For any of our stories today, make sure you head to our website. Just type Pacific Beat and Radio Australia in your search engine. I'm Aggie the Bolt. This is Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Firstly, 15 people have been killed and thousands infected by a deadly outbreak of leptospirosis in Fiji. Health authorities say the disease is being transferred to humans from livestock common to rural areas. And Ground Zero is the island of Kadavu in the country's south. Lede Movono filed this report from Suva. It's a disease well known in tropical environments like Fiji. But this year, health authorities have been overwhelmed. 2,295 cases of the zoonotic disease leptospirosis have been recorded this year alone, and eight patients have been medevac to Suva in the last fortnight. Dr. Svarnia Dasi leads the Eastern Division Medical Command Center, which is overseeing 80 active cases on Kandavu's main government hospital at Vunisea. Leptospirosis has been, you could say, endemic. There are instances of uh, occasions when it's favorable for the bacteria Leptospira to flourish in, for example, wet and rainy season. So, for instance, there are pigs and there is a wet uh, ground and they pass urine onto it or a sick horse. Then if there is a group of uh, children playing rugby and they've got cuts, then they can contract the Leptospira from the wet uh, mud into the island of Kandavu is ground zero as the rough terrain makes it hard for patients to visit doctors early. A joint clinical and public health operation run by the Ministry of Health has worked on the island over the past couple of months to try and bring the numbers under control and stop the disease from spreading. Dr. Darcy says it has been a battle. The manifestations of leptospirosis is that severe leptospirosis can cause bleeding into the lungs and it can also cause renal failure if they come very late. We have lowered the threshold of admission. This puts a load on our clinical uh, doctors and our nurses, but this is very important because right now we want to decrease the burden of severe disease and death due to leptospirosis. Lessons from COVID have helped government to employ a creative approach to find patients early. That's why our numbers have increased because we're actually uh, getting active case findings. We are going out into the community and we are actively looking for cases and getting them because we don't want complications of leptospirosis to set in. The health-seeking behaviour of people in rural and maritime communities continues to worry Dr. Darcy. Our population, especially in our rural maritime uh, areas, they, um, uh, even though they are sick, they will um, keep walking and um, they will try and heal themselves with uh, natural herbal medications 
uh, and uh, only when they get very sick, they uh, attend. They actually attend the clinics or they present themselves to the hospital. Zoonotic diseases are not new, but authorities say recent increases in livestock production and consistent severe weather has created a conducive environment for new threats, complicating matters for government officials. The other thing we are really concerned about is rat droppings. We have seen children below the age of five years get infected, and in some cases toddlers who are not even going into the mud. And these children, we've seen rat droppings in their houses, and we suspect that it's the rat urine which can have infected the toddlers. We have to make sure that we eradicate rats. Health authorities are calling on farmers to report sick animals to Fiji's Ministry of Agriculture. But its permanent secretary, Dr. Andrew Tukana, says this is not straightforward work. And we have uh, you know, animals such as cattle uh, or pigs or horses you know, that can uh, store or host this uh, organism. And uh, sometimes these uh, animals don't get sick, but they you know, have the organisms with them that they can spread. And we just need to be mindful when we go out into these farming environments that the risk is almost there. So we should always be thinking about wearing proper footwear and also covering up parts of our body that may be uh, you know, injured. Meanwhile, at the Ministry of Health, Dr. Dasi says that while the number of patients continues to increase, those succumbing to or facing severe forms of leptospirosis have reduced. We've experienced a surge and it's good. We want to see an increase in cases because we have the increase in mild cases. In the beginning of the outbreak, all the patients, 100% of the patients who were coming were all admitted. But previously, when the patients were very sick, when they were coming in shock, meaning when the blood pressures were down and they came and they were very sick and it took a lot of effort to get them into a more stable conditions. And that was Dr. Shavania Dasi ending that report from Lide Movono. The International Atomic Energy Agency has backed Japan's claims that it's safe to release treated water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi was in the Cook Islands last week to deliver the findings of a two-year study into the plan. But not everyone is convinced, including Epeli Lesuma, nuclear justice campaigner with the Pacific Network on Globalisation. Marion Farr spoke with him and asked if he felt better about the Japanese plan after hearing the IAEA's report. You know, in all honesty, um, no. And I, and I think I, I speak for many in the Pacific that expressed and felt a deep sense of disappointment with the IAEA and their endorsement of, of Japan's plans. The Pacific Islands Forum um, panel of experts who, who many of us have placed uh, uh, our trust in as a source of reliable and, and um, experienced information has come out very strongly to, to denounce their endorsement. Um, this expert panel, you know, they're not just a collection of random scientists. These are esteemed um, academics in their respective areas and, and they've provided uh, comprehensive um, information to um, Pacific governments, but also to uh, CSOs that we've gathered together that, you know, the, the simple fact of the matter is more data is needed to ascertain the true safety um, of this of this plan release, and and we stand by what our our panel of experts have have recommended um, to us. 
When I spoke to the Director General of the IAEA earlier this week, mm. I asked if he had any concerns about um, you know, access to information and data yes. when they were conducting this review, and he assured me that they were given sort of full access and he was very confident in the information that they were given to be able to release this report, basically saying that... Um, the water release will have negligible impact. And so I wonder how you feel sort of hearing that from the IAEA, that they, they are mm. very confident in the information they've been given. I think, um, yeah, I, I beg to differ um, on that. Um, in, in discussions, you know, as recently as about two Fridays, last Friday actually, the Pacific Collective on Nuclear Issues had the opportunity to to have uh, to be briefed by Professor Bob Richmond, who is also a member of the expert panel. And despite um, the Director General of the IAEA's assurances that sufficient data was provided, he, he, he differed significantly. Um, uh, Professor Bob begged to differ. And, and I think it's, it's worth also mentioning that, you know, I think for Pacific people, we feel that there's a level of gaslighting taking place. Their claims that there's sufficient data being provided to the expert panel, um, there's claims that there's, that there's sufficient data to validate that um, it's safe. Well, if 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 the IAE director, IAEA director, is, director general is you know so confident in the data available, so confident in the safety of the water, then you know our view is store it in Japan. Release it in Japan. Use it on, use the water on Japanese rice paddy fields rather than releasing it into the Pacific Ocean. Um, a problem of Japan's should not become the problem for many countries in the Pacific who who rely on the ocean not only um, as a source of income for fisheries, but also it is our spiritual um, lifeblood. The ocean holds a sacred place for us as Pacific people. And, and to release this nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean is to sully what is sacred to us. And, and, you know, all this talk of data and science, it means one thing for the IAEA and for TEPCO and the Japanese government, for, but for Pacific people, it doesn't, it doesn't hold true. I absolutely hear your um, concerns about the value of the ocean for people in the Pacific and how important that is, and the the strong desire to protect that. It's very um, I can I can hear that in your voice. My understanding, one of the things that I've been told is that to keep this water on land, or to release this water on land and use it in rice paddy fields would be riskier because by releasing it into the ocean, you can actually dilute it and releasing it into the ocean slowly, yeah, you can dilute it over time. So I'm interested in, in what your thoughts are on that. Sure. I, I think when considering that Japan is far more technically advanced than many many of our Pacific Island countries, I am confident that the Japanese would be able to find uh, some level of innovation and solution to make the water safe to store, to use in Japan. Um, I think the, the example that I used when um, we were speaking to Korean uh, media, similarly, they, they asked a similar question was, uh, Japan's release of this nuclear water into the Pacific Ocean is akin to us visiting Japan and, and littering and leaving our rubbish in Japan. Um, you know, 
Japan, for all its technical technological advances, advancements, uh, have the opportunity here to prove that they're a global leader in innovation and find um, an environmentally sustainable, environmentally clean way to dispose of this wastewater, which without having to compromise the, the health and vitality of the Pacific Ocean. How do you feel about how Japan has engaged with the Pacific over these matters, over this plan? I know from briefings that we've had with members of the expert panel, uh, they did um, allude to the fact that earlier on there was a, a certain level of condescension by Japan um, towards the panel, you know, they they weren't being furnished with sufficient data and information. Um, they were uh, the the presentations being made were at such a high scientific level that the real meat of a matter um, got lost in all the jargon and the numbers. That's that's engagement with the Pacific panel. But on the other side, the the Japanese government has also concerningly been paying a lot of visits to the Pacific Islands. And I think of particular concern for us has been how overseas development assistance has been used as a means to placate leaders and buy support for what we term um, within the Pacific Collective on Nuclear Issues as a dangerous and irresponsible plan. Last week, the Director General of the IAEA travelled to the Cook Islands to present the findings of this uh, report into the plan. And after that meeting, Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown said, if the water is safe, it should be released, or something to that effect. What do you make of that comment? Did that signify (laughs) support for the wastewater discharge? I, you know what, it, we, it set off, it set off alarm bells um, here. I think, I, I, I think it's also worth noting that the, the Cook Islands, you know, when you think about the health and and the vitality of our oceans, uh, the Cook Islands is also a state that is um, endorsing um, the mining of our of the deep sea. Um, and so, you know, one does wonder whether perhaps his position in defending the ocean is slightly compromised because on the flip side, there is this, this other, you know, you, you, you are pro deep sea mining, but also that and now you're suddenly um, softening the stance of the forum in saying that the water from nuclear waste water from Japan could be safe. You know, it's, it, it's um, it's worrying, I suppose, that as the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum, he could make a comment um, like that when so many other um, so many other member states um, would beg to differ. I think perhaps his view um, and one expressed in a in the pleasantries of a media conference with the IAEA di- Director General, his view um, perhaps may not represent that of all Pacific Island governments. Um, Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister earlier this year came out very strongly um, against Japan's plans, um, um, but also in saying that his his strong statement um, during a press release uh, was followed by a quick succession of Japanese high official visits to Fiji and so, you know, there's this there's this sort of game that we're playing um, that I think um, it 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 uh, 
it's yeah, it's just concerning, and I don't think, I don't think that uh, the Prime Minister Honourable Mark Brown's comments should be taken as the view of all Pacific Island Forum member states. Just finally, Apelli, um, what would you like to happen? If I were to be, if I were to be perfectly honest, I would prefer that the Japanese keep their nuclear waste in Japan. Don't dump it in the ocean. Their problem should not be our problem. Now is not the time to continue um, perpetuating nuclear legacies of the post-World War II period. If it's as safe as they claim, store it and keep it in Japan, but don't dump it in our Pacific Ocean. And that was Epeli Lesuma, a nuclear justice campaigner with the Pacific Network on Globalisation, speaking with Marion Farm. Right now, it's that time where we see what is happening around in the region, and I've got Carl Evans with me for our news wrap. With that, I say good morning, and how's it going? <laughs> good morning to you, Aggie. I'm, I'm very well today, actually. No, I, I slept well last night. I was all ready for my uh, 4 a.m. start. No, feeling good. Funny how we've uh, switched roles right now, right? We have, yeah. It's been a <laughs> bit, of, bit of musical chairs uh, lately uh, in our studio, but um, I think we're on... On a, on a good regular yeah, tandem now. Absolutely. Hey, look, Carl, what have you got for us this morning? Yeah, so pretty uh, concerning story to start off with today, actually. Uh, two Fiji police officers uh, will face court uh, over alleged rape charges. So uh, this is in relation uh, to an incident uh, 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 involving a, a female officer. The two officers alleged to be involved. Uh, it's an attempted rape of a female officer. They've both been charged and will face court today. That's according to the Lombasa Criminal Investigations Department. Um, there's not a lot of info other than that at the moment, other than they remain in custody and, and will front court, like I said, but look, really serious charges and one that's probably going to be followed very, very closely given it's uh, obviously happened uh, within the uh, police institution. It's not something you, you really want to be hearing about, Aggie. No, but that's definitely a developing story, so we'll keep our eyes and ears on that one. Um, something about nightclubs in Fiji, of course, they look like they will now close at 1am. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it appears they all have a new closing time after Parliament passed a new Liquor uh, Amendment Act on Friday. So this is something we obviously reported on. Um, FBC rep- uh, uh, reported Following uh, following that that Parliament sitting, and it comes after 29 MPs voted for the bill, uh, as opposed to 23 who voted against it. And it means that new opening hours for selling liquor are now 11 a.m. to 1 a.m. for taverns and nightclubs, and 1 p.m. and 12 a.m. Uh, for restaurants. Uh, and this obviously comes after reports of things like brawls, robberies, uh, attacks in and around nightlife areas uh, due to the activity caused by these venues. Um, it was interesting, one Fiji, uh, one Fiji first uh, opposition member actually spoke out against against it afterwards. Uh, it said uh, these venues made next to nothing during the pandemic and a lot of these incidences that I just spoke about, things like the attacks and stuff, were all isolated incidents and shouldn't, be, shouldn't have been used as justification to amend that bill. So it's going to be interesting to say what particularly the business owners um, have to say uh, around this because you've got to think, you know, that's four hours of, uh, of operating time there. It's probably going to lead to a, a little bit of lost income, I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. I think that'll be the hard thing on the economy, but also you have to weigh up uh, safety. Absolutely. If there's a lot of people who are obviously in brawls, robberies, attacks, uh, then I think it probably is a good thing. Okay, what are we ending off? Oh, Donga. That's <laughs> right. Uh, well, how can I not remember this? But of course, yes, Donga had a big win over Australia, eh? 
Yeah, massive. So the Akali Tahi uh, defeated Australia a 27-21 in Nukua Lofa on Friday. Uh, the hosts skipped out to a 24-0 halftime lead on the back of four unanswered tries. So, yeah, just a, just a great start, much to the delight of a, of a, of a really uh, vocal home crowd. Um, Australia did manage to steady the ship a little bit in the second half, scoring three straight tries of their own, but obviously it, uh, it wasn't enough. They did come within three points at one stage. It was 24-21. It sort of looked like it could go really any direction, but uh, Tonga did get a 77th-minute penalty, and uh, which they were able to convert to extend the lead and put that game out of reach. So, yeah, really good way to mark the 50th anniversary of Tonga's first ever win over Australia. But uh, more importantly, Aggie, it's uh, very much a warning shot, I think, uh, ahead of the uh, the World Cup. They might, they may well be a, uh, a team to be feared. And they'll actually be playing the Flying Fijians on Saturday as well. So it'll be interesting to see if that form can continue. Uh, well, you know, sometimes Tonga has been known as the underdog. So, you know, when it's the underdog, <laughs> we root for them because they're the ones who are pretty much able to do a comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm rooting for MM, uh, sorry, for Tonga the Igaretahi, who are going to do really well. Uh, also for Australia? Yeah, well, interesting <laughs> with this Australia. Obviously, it was Australia's second team, uh, Australia A, and and you know, not a great, not a great result for them. But it has probably called uh, Australia's depth into question. Um, you'd imagine. I know there were some some concerns with the way they played, according to Bernard Foley after the game. Um, and I understand you're obviously a, a, you've got some New Zealand background as well. They had a big win on the weekend as well. They did. Hey, look, a, a big, of course, a shout out to the All Blacks who beat the Springboks. Uh, the score was thirty five. 20 uh, in that game that just happened uh, in the weekend and it was a packed crowd and of course four Kiwis back home uh, I think the crowd atmosphere always seems to play into the game. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would have been the same for Ikaretahi back in Tonga. Where was that game played? Uh, that was at Mount Smart Stadium back in Auckland. Oh, yeah, they're impossible to beat over there. <laughs> <aren't> they? <laughs> but they also obviously have a game coming up uh, this Wednesday and that's against, I'm going to Call myself an Aussie now <laughs> because I'm here in Australia. But yeah, that's going to be happening this Wednesday. So we'll see how the All Blacks go up against uh, the Wallabies. There's so much sport. So much sport, Aggie. You've got the Rugby World Cup coming up. You've got the uh, Soccer World Cup coming that's up. We've got the Basketball World Cup oh, coming up as well. So uh, it's just going to be a lot of fun stuff to, like uh, to report on. Uh, look, thanks, Kyle, for today. Really appreciate uh, our news rep today. And now to Vanuatu's Minister of Finance and Economic Management, who has appealed to Australian-based Ni Vanuatu nationals to return home and not ruin the country's reputation. John Salong's comments follow recent reports in the Vanuatu Daily Post that over a 1,000 Vanuatu citizens have applied for protection visas in Australia. The report also shows that out of the Pacific Island countries, Tonga and Vanuatu have the highest numbers of people seeking asylum in Australia. Here's Minister Mr. Salong speaking to Carolyn Terman. Uh, my thoughts, uh, Caroline, are that uh, these people who have been seeking protection visas, most of them have been misinformed and misled by people in Australia who have uh, tried to use that as an opportunity for them to get away from their contractual obligations and get away from their need to return to Vanuatu. And uh, they must know that. Uh, uh, we are in Vanuatu are not happy that they are ruining the reputation of the Republic of Vanuatu, a very good country to live in, and uh, we uphold all our constitutional fundamental freedoms and rights. 
and nobody is persecuted in this country. There is no war in this country, and we live a really good life. And so we would encourage all of them to come back and reconnect with their families and uh, connect with their communities and uh, leave them in good standing. Uh, when uh, Honorable Pat Conroy was here last in Vanuatu, I specifically asked him to look at uh, expediting the processing of uh, Vanuatu protection visa application so that uh, those who remain and continue to insist that they should be processed as asylum seekers can be deported and blacklisted and they will be banned for life. But there's still a window when they have yet to be processed for them to come to their sentence, return back to Vanuatu, and uh, we can just forget about the fact that they have begun the process of initiating protection visa applications. Minister John Salong, so why do you think these people are applying for protection visas? We know that these people have been misled by people who have vested interest in Australia uh, because they can't find workers. They find themselves to be uh, in uh, in the company of Nibaluatu workers who are good. So they have misled them into saying that this is your process so that you can continue to be in Australia and even continue to have So there is a group in Australia that are basically uh, using uh, no, uh, poorly educated Nibaluatu fully informed even not to do, not knowing what they're doing. What would your advice be to future seasonal workers coming to work in Australia regarding protection visas? Uh, basically, if anybody wants to go with DVA, as soon as we begin to cost these asylum tickets or protection visa applicants, they will be deported back to not because there's no standing whatsoever for them to be able to claim and so best for people to maintain their good reputation as persons uh, for their families and of course to maintain the good reputation of Vanuatu as a good sending country. So I advise everybody who's there now and every new one that is going, uh, stick with your contract and you'll be able to come and go as you please. And Vanuatu government office will always work with the good ones to maintain uh, Vanuatu's reputation. Caroline Turman speaking to Vanuatu's Minister of Finance and Economic Management, John Salong. Up next, you've got Rats Eradication in Tonga here on Pacific Beat. Days Like These, the Pacific is a program about those days that go spectacularly wrong or go brilliantly right. The best days, the worst days. One Pacific person with one story about the day when everything changed. It's about the risks we take and the decisions we make. Chance encounters, secrets revealed, sometimes funny, sometimes scary, sometimes both. But always the best story you'll hear all week. Tune in to Days Like These, the Pacific, Tuesday mornings at 9.30 on ABC Radio Australia. To the Kingdom of Tonga, a new rat eradication project is underway on one of its islands, Latte, to kickstart a chain reaction that will restore its ecosystem. By neutralising the rat population, the project hopes to nurture local seabirds to deposit nutrient-rich guano on the island. Project coordinator from South Pacific Regional Environmental Programme, Isabel Roche, says the guano will then flow out to the reefs and fertilise the growth of algae, a vital ingredient for coral reefs, fish 
and human livelihood. Reporter Jan Kahoot spoke to Isabel Roche. So Latte Island is obviously the one of the largest uh, islands to be eradicated of rats. Um, however, it's not the first to undergo these types of operations, both in Tonga and in the Pacific. Uh, in fact, we have had success um, with eradicating rats in Tonga before and as well as across the region, but these have been on a smaller scale. And we've, from studies and from experiences with our Pacific communities that have undergone these uh, similar operations, they uh, have seen the impacts or the increase of productivity of their reefs and the resilience of their reefs. Um, you know, communities who rely on islands that have undergone successful rat operations have said that the fish is back up to at least 50% increase. The management of uh, invasive species in Latte, including the rats, have been a long-term goal of the government of Tonga. Uh, the first line of defense that Pacific countries rely on to deal with the impacts of climate change and controlling invasive species is one of the most effective tools of increasing our um, resilience to this. So uh, the RAT uh, program through LATTE, we know that this is going to yield significant outputs because of how big LATTE is. And so why LATTE? It's because it's been identified as a key site for restoration through eradication. And because of its ecological importance and benefits to support the livelihoods and communities of Tonga. Like I said, just under 2,000 hectares of land, Latte is home to already a really wide range of Tonga's biodiversity. The island already supports tropical broadleaf ecosystem, which is one of the most threatened types of ecosystems in the world. And it's also one of the best uh, remaining tracts of diverse native forest for the Kingdom of Tonga. Um, so yes, it does house a lot of Tonga's endemic and native species. It is also forecasted, uh, planned by the government of Tonga through its Department of Environment to secure refugia for 95% of Tonga's biodiversity. So we expect to see the increase of numbers in seabirds on Latte and bring back the populations of native birds that exist there. The relationship between trying to fight invasive species because it's reducing the ability for communities to adapt to climate change wasn't quite yep. sure what, what that was about. What's the relationship there? So, as you know, um, our environment, our natural environment and all of its ecosystems, so our reefs, for example, these are all our... This is what we recognise as our first line of defence to the impacts of climate change. And we there have been studies that have been recently published that the presence of rats on islands directly impact the population of seabirds, which are a transporter of nutrients between terrestrial and marine environments. So, for example, on Latte Island, rats have had a direct impact on the population of seabirds. And because of that, there's no more seabirds to provide the uh, nutrients that I mentioned. So the fish population and the health of reefs have dwindled because of this absence of species. So removing rats means that the population of seabirds are restored. They are now carrying out their functions for their guano uh, to be transported from land onto the oceans, an important nutrient of reefs. 
And so there's now science to support that invasive species management contributes to uh, the resilience of our islands. What seabird exactly? Is it several seabirds that um, carry that nutrient? Yes. So, yes, all seabirds carry important, they're guano. They are an important nutrient for reefs. So they, uh, seabirds are recognized as transporters and providers of nutrients between these two ecosystems, the land and the reefs, the marine. And so that keeps the reef alive uh, and obviously the yes. fish alive as well. Yes. What's the, the closest community to Latte Island? You know, that's, that community is affected by the lack of nutrients coming into the reefs. Yes. Right. Okay. So we delivered um, in early June, we delivered our final series of community consultations. The communities in Vava'u, including all of the government stakeholders, NGOs, business operators, and this operation, the Latte and uh, Small Island Vava'u uh, eradication operations, were strongly supported by communities because uh, that just goes to show that all of these uh, different stakeholders have seen and have felt the impacts of rats in their lives for food security, fish stocks, all of these uh, different aspects of uh, Pacific livelihoods. So it's a good indication, um, uh, but it's also a very important step to engage our communities so that they have consent and we have their support because um, delivering the operation is one thing, but uh, keeping latte free of the rats uh, will largely depend on the support of our stakeholders. And that is Israel Roche from Esprit, but talking to Jan Kahoot. To Northern Australia, Indigenous rangers and traditional owners in Anaheim land are celebrating the federal government officially giving them a contract to look after thousands of square kilometres of their country. However, as Jane Barden reports, traditional owners are still concerned about threats from commercial fishing and resources projects. 500 kilometres east of Darwin, the Crocodile Islands archipelago is teeming with threatened turtles, whales, dugongs and northern Australia's biggest populations of migratory shorebirds. Moringa traditional owners came to Rapama Island to celebrate that the federal government has agreed to include 8,000 square kilometres of this land and sea country into its network of Indigenous Protected Areas, or IPAs. Thank you everybody for your coming here for this IPA. Traditional owner Leonard Bawegnu helped found the Crocodile Islands rangers who've been safeguarding this area. I wanted to make an IP so that ranger could work on country. I wanted to see young ones to be on the island, to live out on country, to learn from the elders. I keep thinking of my dream, how to protect the sacred site. If you are the landowner, you have to keep it healthy. Crocodile Island's senior ranger Zach Escobar and his colleagues protect the area from illegal fishing, weeds and rubbish carried here on the currents. So we work in land and sea looking after the animals mostly, like picking up rubbish near the shore. The heaps of rubbish, marine debris are pushing towards our main islands. What kinds of threat does that pose to some of the animals that you're looking after? 
when the turtle eats the plastic, it makes the turtle dies quicker. Having their country declared an indigenous protected area means there's now a formal agreement between the clans and the federal government. It gives the rangers ongoing funding to carry out management plans for threatened species, weeds, feral animals, wildfire and marine debris. National Indigenous Australians Agency Deputy Chief Executive James Christian joined the celebration. An IPA is a further acknowledgement that you know this country the best You've been caring for it, and it's been caring for you and your people. IPAs still allow commercial fishing and gas operations. However, Leonard Bowainu hopes it'll help traditional owners resist pressure for more development. There is commercial fishermen out there. Could be mining coming up. It's going to hurt. That makes me worry. Senior Jungai, a cultural caretaker for the islands, Rose Lengba Lengba, also hopes this. We have turtles to be protected, turtle eggs, dolphins, whales. We want the waters to be rich with our fishes. We've been scared for a long time that there was um, fishery boats coming up and, and they were entering. Do you feel really that there's still pressure on these waters? Yes, yes we do. And that's why I want the federal government to see it that way, that this land is in our hearts, it teaches us, it is our knowledge, it is our wisdom, and we want it to stay as it is. The federal government has included 50,000 square kilometres of Australian waters into its IPA network, and Labour plans to triple this. Uh, ABC Jane Barden reporting there. Up next, what is happening in the world of Hollywood and how is this going to affect us? I'm Aggie Dubong and this is Pacific Beat. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. Now, for the first time in 43 years, Hollywood actors are on strike, bringing productions in Tinseltown to a standstill. The actors are joining screenwriters who've been on picket lines since May, demanding better pay and the protection of their jobs from emerging technologies like AI. So what's going to happen to the American productions being filmed here in our region? We have Wing Kuang reporting. From the white picket fence to the picket lines, Australian Margot Robbie is to pause promoting her latest movie, Barbie, to join her fellow actors and writers on strike. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm very much in support of all the unions and I'm a part of SAG. So The Screen Actors Guild, or the SAG, represents 160,000 movies and television stars. And for the first time in 43 years, they've voted to strike. They joined writers who've been off the job for 10 weeks now. They are demanding better pay and conditions as well as protection for their jobs from artificial intelligence. Luke Devonish is a playwright and senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Both actors and writers are steadily realising that they are potentially replaceable under this new technology and everyone is deeply, deeply uneasy about what that might mean. Actors are especially worried about production studios using AI to capture their voices and facial information for permanent use without payment or consent. 
Both writers and actors' unions have been in negotiations with major production studios in the past two months, but neither reached an agreement. And Luke Davenish believes a dual walkout could be a game-changing moment. So we're going to be seeing a huge amount of very, very famous faces coming to join the writers in their picketing outside the offices of institutions and organisations, including Netflix. That's going to be a really good look, and that's going to get a huge amount of publicity. And that's probably additional pressure that the big studios and the big streaming services don't much want. There are potential ramifications for Australia. Australia's Actors' Union, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance says it fully supports the Hollywood actor strike. And in a statement, Screen Producers Australia anticipates that a limited number of scripted non-Australian productions will be affected by the strike. Claire Pullen is the CEO of Australian Writers Guild. There are a number of writers in Australia who are members of both guilds. So it's impacted the work that they do or could be doing in the US. In terms of productions here, every production is different in terms of its financing and where the writers room is and where the production and the post-production is being done. So we're yet to see any big announcements of things that are just because of the writers' strike, but the longer the strike goes on, particularly for now that um, SAG have joined us, uh, it's going to have an impact. There's no question about that. Australia is a popular destination for international productions. In June, Apple shut down the Melbourne production of an eight-part series, Metropolis, citing the impact of the strikes and rising production costs. The series was supposed to create nearly 4,000 jobs in Victoria. What we're learning is how much the issues that impact writers in the US are the same as the issues that impact us here. Uh, AI coming into our market, making sure that we have fair wages and conditions and our royalties and residuals. It, It sounds so complex, but it's actually just a way of making sure that when you create something, you get to benefit every time someone watches it in the future. Disney CEO Bob Iger has accused writers and actors of having unrealistic expectations. Insiders predict the strike might last till late October. And that right there was Wing Kuan reporting. Well, that brings us to the end of a Pacific Beat. Uh, the programs and the stories today we spoke about was the deadly outbreak there in Fiji. Pacific campaigners not convinced on that Fukushima water release in our backyard of the Pacific Ocean and eradicating rats in Tonga to restore its ecosystem. For any of our stories, again, make sure you head to our website. Just type Pacific Beat and Radio Australia in your search engine. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. And you can also hear us again this afternoon afternoon at 3pm. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia though, because news is next, followed by Jacob Maguire on Nisha Daily. Follow us on Facebook, ABC Pacific. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubong. Thanks for your company here on Pacific Beat.